Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and this episode is focused on fiscal responsibility, how we should think about stimulus and recovery spending, and how we should think of fiscal anchors or what the fall economic statement described as fiscal guardrails. I'm joined on this episode by economist Kevin Page, currently president and CEO of the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa, but no doubt better known as Canada's first parliamentary budget officer from 2008 to 2013. For his work in that role, he's been described as an unlikely hero, and while it's a job he said nobody wanted, himself included, he's also described it as the best five years of his public service career, a career that included 27 years of experience in the public service, including time at the Department of Finance, the Treasury Board Secretariat, and the Privy Council Office. Now, over the last five years, I've certainly relied upon Kevin's advice and guidance in reviewing federal budgets and scrutinizing spending. So who better to help me work through questions around pandemic spending to date and the significant federal spending that lies ahead? Thanks for joining me, Kevin. Pleasure, Nathaniel. There are a number of things I want to talk to you about, and we've had many conversations in the past where you are in a role, in an educator role, really, to walk me through how best I can read and analyze the budgets that the federal government's put out. I want to start with recovery and spending from the federal government and the frame of mind we should be in as we look to future spending. I want to get to transparency of past spending as well, but I want to start with recovery spending because you have said it would not be wise to pursue austerity. In the fall economic statement, we saw a very general commitment, 70 to $100 billion towards a building back better fund of sorts. How should a member of parliament or a policymaker be thinking about return on investment and where we ought to prioritize our building back better commitments? I think on a couple of those issues, certainly starting with recovery, Nathaniel, I would say there's probably a debate about when recovery actually starts because we've never really had a lockdown economy before. So it's not like a traditional recession recovery cycle. And just so we find ourselves in this really different era where we saw like 2020, like it's just a, almost like a yo-yo, a small drop in GDP in the first quarter, a massive drop in GDP in in the second quarter, certainly a rebound in the third quarter and likely in the fourth quarter. But now because of the growth of the second wave of this infection, we've seen certainly in labor market data, and I think we'll see it in the GDP data as well. So some real kind of a slowing of growth. You could argue like it's maybe we need to rethink just when, you know, the timing of recovery in the context of a lockdown economy when we really haven't vaccinated people. The minister, Minister Freeland, has already talked about or signaled in her fall economic statement that she's uh, very open to the need for uh, a fiscal stimulus. And in, in 2021, 22, and 23, she's provided numbers and economic scenarios to underpin that. I think that is a very good approach. And there's ranges of numbers because there's still a lot of uncertainty about the strength of the economy and about the amount of stimulus. So normally when we think about recovery spending in the context of a normal recession, in, in the context of stimulus, is that we want to kind of close what some economists would call an output gap. So the economy is operating well below its potential now. We've seen you know, a big increase in the unemployment rate in the December data. We know on a GDP basis, on a year-over-year basis, we're still three, four percentage points below on a year-over-year basis. So like, you know, the economists will, in a normal cycle, will think about how do we close that gap? And usually recovery spending in, in the context of a weak economy is usually kind of focused on putting money in the hands of people that you know are going to spend it. And so it's usually, it's, it's tend to be people that were laid off, in particular, you know, households, individuals that were laid off as a result of, in this case, COVID, 
or businesses that have really been impaired because of the lockdown. So putting money in their hands is where they really need it will give you the biggest bang for the buck in the context of kind of a normal recession recovery sense. So I think your broader question, though, in terms of return on investments is not so much in terms of like stimulus to close the gap. And Minister Freeland's talked about numbers in the range of the next three years between 70 and 100 billion dollars, depending on scenarios which would be, you know, could be 20 to as much as $30 billion a year, depending on the year and depending on the, these guardrails. But I think there's a longer term question is like, what is the role of fiscal policy once we close this output gap and we get to, you know, something that feels like normal in terms of overall GDP, overall, you know, the, you know, the status of labor markets and, and the health of businesses. And then I think we're into this broader conversation about fiscal policy supporting, you know, green investment, fiscal policy supporting improvements in inclusion, dealing with these, you know, pre-COVID and COVID income disparity issues. And then I think this broader, this issue that people are talking about more and more that economists have really, I think, let the guard down, this issue of resilience. Like, how do we make sure that, you know, the next time we find ourselves in a pandemic that we're ready for it? And because clearly we were not ready for it in, in, you know, a year ago. And so, again, how do you build resilience into the healthcare system, into our social safety nets, so that we're, you know, we, we, you know we're ready to deal with that next shock? And not only resilience, I, I just made my budget submission to Minister Freeland, and I emphasize also a preventative approach. I mean, the WHO has written that the preventative measures in relation to a pandemic can be measured in billions, but the costs of a pandemic get measured in trillions. And if we don't do, yes, resilience, but if we don't do that actual preventative work to tackle climate change, to protect our biodiversity, to transform our food systems, that we are going to see continued increasing and emerging infectious diseases, principally zoonoses. And that's going to put us all at risk, not only as a matter of health, but also our economies at risk. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I hope that that when we think about building back better, we think exactly in those sorts of terms that, that there's a definitely big components of prevention. So we're ready to deal with these shocks and we can avoid a lot of these shocks. And we, in the case of climate change, we know that we're, you know, we're dealing with these impacts. We see them in the news, you know, you know glaciers that are collapsing and that are actually killing people in different parts of the world. Um, we've seen like the enormous heat waves and fires and floods of 2020, the hottest year on record. So how do we, we know we have to mitigate and adapt to deal with it. So yeah, I think to, to try to, to deal with that in advance is part of a Build Back Better package that makes a lot of sense to me. And you mentioned fiscal guardrails. Mr. Freeland's spoken about those kinds of guardrails and rather than a fiscal anchor, the language of guardrails. And, and walk me through the distinction there and what important guardrails are for, for the federal government going forward. I think it's going to be kind of your know, fiscal anchors, guardrails, and rules. So, so it won't be planes, trains, and automobiles, but it'll be <laughs> anchors, guardrails, and rules. And I think like the quid pro quo for you know, allowing governments to spend more money and uh, wanting to maintain, I think, a AAA bond rating is that we're going to have to have a very strong fiscal planning framework with appropriate budgetary constraints. So an anchor usually is like some level of debt that we're prepared to live with. And then, you know, these guardrails are really about how do we make sure that we don't develop what economists would call pro-cyclical policy. So we're, you know, not stimulating an economy that could potentially be heated up as a result of all this accommodation. And the rules are just to make sure that people know that, that how is the government going to hit these targets? And then I think probably even to add on to that, and I apologize, it would be kind of escape clauses. We know if we, if we find ourselves in a recession in a couple of years that we know 
know that you know some of these fiscal anchors and rules will have to be adjusted. So I think it's a package, a much stronger package than we had before. Nathaniel, going into COVID, the COVID period, we had sort of a fiscal rule of a declining debt to GDP ratio, which gave a lot of freedom for the government to develop policy. So if there were any positive economic surprises, they could quite comfortably spend them and still have a declining debt to GDP ratio. But now we've seen a debt to GDP ratio climb by 20 percentage points. And our deficit, our year-over-year increase in the deficit will be the largest amongst advanced economies, uh, OECD economies. So I think bond rating agencies are going to want to know that we have appropriate constraints in place to deal with uh, recovery. And the thing we want to avoid is, again, that pro-cyclical kind of policy with this too much fiscal stimulus, too many much monetary stimulus, and we end up having you know, to correct an inflation problem or we are dealing with much higher interest rates and that could be very explosive in a high debt economy. We've spoken a little bit about future spending already, but there's been hundreds of billions in spending to date. And you've written recently about the need for a fiscal transparency reset. And you pointed to other countries that have provided a greater detail of transparency, a greater level of transparency, and that Canada has failed to meet those same standards. What level of transparency and specifically what changes should the federal government be looking at to improve the level of transparency going forward? You could look at how did the government score during its sort of the COVID fiscal supports? And how did that scoring, like from a transparency perspective, compare with other countries? Where where are the gaps? And should we close these gaps? And then I think there's a question of what kind of transparency would we like to have around additional spending related to stimulus in a recovery period or in the context of a a fiscal reset. So I did some work with one of my some of my students, Jeffrey Bug and Shannon Smith, and we worked with CBC to really to look at what other countries were doing. What are the good benchmarks? And I think for the most part, Canada was kind of in the middle you know, of countries in terms of transparency, you know, did we have good information program by program basis of monies that were going out the door? Could we, you know, see who they were going to in terms of clients? You know, how timely was this information? And again, this information is important, not only for you as a parliamentarian to hold the executive to account, but it's also very important for us to part of that resiliency conversation that you talked about, are these programs working? So whether it's a wage subsidy program or a CERB program or supports for students, et cetera, et cetera, like, you know, the more we can analyze them in real time to see if the money is appropriately targeted, I think the better um, people like yourselves can, you know, elevate the level of debate and discourse and we can change programs on the go because we're still dealing with COVID. Even though we're, we're hopeful that vaccines will be there in 2021, we could be dealing with this for a period of time, the transmission of this virus. So what we found, Nathaniel, was that probably the biggest gap was really relative to the United States, where they were very transparent and created a a terrific website that, you know, Canadians can go to, that parliamentarians can go to, or in their case, congressional people can go to if we had it in Canada. So they could see almost rated, you know, geographically and right down to the client program by program where, you know, who's getting this, this kind of money, what are the benefits And, you know, there was really just like a month lag in the data. So your listeners can actually go to the COVID site for the, in the U S government, there's a credible website. It's geographically based all this information across all the programs with really a month, month and a half lag is kind of there. And we, we never had that. So for people like myself, who are trying to figure out this sort of money, we were reliant on, you know, those updates from the minister of finance in the summer and the fall of 2020 on these big updates we got something like the fiscal monitor, which was, you know, gives us these trial balance sheet informations. But the program by program stuff was really hard to find. Like you had to go searching. It wasn't centralized. 
So I think part of the transparency is just making it a lot easier, increasing the timeliness. And on the level of transparency, I think the government closed the gap just before Christmas, where we started to see company by company, what were they getting in these big wage subsidies? That's a good point. And, and the wage subsidy, I think, is a really good example, because I can go to the government website and I can see there were 8.9 million unique applicants for CERB. There were 27.57 million applications received, and the total value paid out was $81.64 billion. I can go on the website to find about the emergency business loan and see $42.41 billion was paid out. I can see, as it relates to the wage subsidy, that there were 411,470 unique applicants with approved claims for a total just under $62 billion. But there was no level of transparency. We had we had BCE come before our industry committee recently. And only in the days prior to that attendance did a, a media organization examine some provincial filings and find out that BCE received $122.8 million in federal wage subsidy. The federal government hadn't indicated the largest recipient, BC, I think, they hadn't even indicated who the largest recipient was. So we see in fits and starts transparency, but not certainly that fulsome transparency of here's the list of all the companies, which we finally got, as you say, in December, but we didn't see how much the companies received. Yeah. So I think there's definitely been efforts to close the gaps. And I would say like all countries struggled through 2020, just started to keep up the race to get money out the door and to provide briefings for their legislators. So it's a struggle. And, but I would, as we move forward, Nathaniel, really dealing around the recovery, there's now a chance, I think, with this conversation around stimulus, around guardrails, to actually have to think about what is the performance that they want to get from this sort of money. It's your, exactly your question. What are those big returns on investments? Like when you look at this crisis that we're dealing with COVID in 2020, it's a very different set of fiscal supports than we've ever had before. You can compare it with 2008 and 9, but you have to be careful because it's a lockdown economy and not a financial crisis. But one of the things you do see when you look at the national accounts data, Nathaniel, is that the money went out the door really quickly, which is great, right, to households and businesses and to the point where you actually see a spike in disposable incomes. This is kind of information that a lot of people are going to wrap their head around. What does this mean for recovery going forward? And I think it could be very positive for recovery. We have to be a little bit careful about an economy as we come out through. And once we vaccinate, there's a, a lot of built up savings in some uh, in some households, not all households, but certainly some certainly the average. It's you've seen the spike. And so we could actually see a somewhat inflated economy as we move to the end of this year. If, should we be fortunate enough and vaccinate people like the prime minister is committed to doing and into, into 2022? So when Minister Freeland talks about guardrails, this is a really good addition to this discussion of. Uh, making sure that we don't get fiscal policy becoming too stimulative and creating you know, additional debt, but actually overheating the economy, forcing central banks to raise interest rates because of higher inflation. So when we talk about the government potentially taking on additional debt to finance that 70 to $100 billion in recovery spending, when we look at some households that have managed to increase their savings, and I don't know where the numbers are currently at, but I saw at one point the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives has said that Canada's billionaires are now $37 billion richer post-pandemic. And we think from a, from a fairness perspective, I have recently spoken to a few economists in this space as it relates to wealth taxation. And there's a bit of a debate around annual wealth taxes, their, their effectiveness and what role they ought to play. But I was surprised at the relative unanimity that a one-time wealth tax 
which you would say, as of yesterday, the wealth that people had, we're going to tax on a one-time basis, an exceptional basis to help with the pandemic response, that there was really strong support from Robin Bodway, from Sarah Prey at the OECD, from Aruna Advani, who is part of the UK Wealth Tax Commission. And as it relates to the numbers, I, others will have maybe better suggestions, but I threw out this notion of taxing assets over 5 million at 1%, assets over 10 million by 3%, and assets over 20 million at 5%. And the Library of Parliament ran those numbers through the PBO's modeling tool. And $70 billion was the one-time revenue that could be generated there. And it seems to me that that could then pay for the recovery building back better fund, which we've estimated at 70 to $100 billion. But that's a long way of saying, I wonder what you think if you've turned your mind to in any way, this notion of a one-time wealth tax, and if there's a role that that kind of taxation ought to play. Probably nobody really wants to talk about taxes rate in this particular environment right now because of the, um, the economy is still in recessions, effectively on a year-over-year basis. Uh, we have an unemployment rate sitting like at 9.6%. So the idea, I think it would scare people in generally to talk about tax reform, with the possible exception of the one that you're talking about, wealth taxation. The interest has been building. It was certainly there in the 2019 election platforms when a number of the parties talked about wealth-style taxes. I think people like Professor Budway for a number of years have been talking, making sure that we're taxing appropriately wealth as it is being generated. So there's that conversation. I think there's actually a piece in Financial Times today written by Martin Wolf that talks about taxation, the need to you know to tax corporations differently in a post-COVID environment, the need to address taxation issues at municipality levels, which are going to be hamstrung because of a loss of revenue that have taken place. You know, people are not using buses, transit, et cetera. So they've lost a lot of this, this fee revenue. I think that so there's a broader need to talk about taxation in a post-COVID economy world. But I think, yeah, the idea of a wealth tax is being a bit of to, uh, putting a down payment on a Build Back Better is very interesting, a Build Back Better approach, because we know the bills are going to be enormous. And, be, and again, we talk about stimulus, but that stimulus is really typically for economists is something, again, to close an output gap, which could be closed literally in 2022 depending on different scenarios. And even Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary for, for President Biden in the United States, is talking about full employment in 2022. So the idea of stimulus, you don't really need stimulus if you're at full employment. So then the context of what is Build Back Better is really a longer term structural issue. Exactly. How do we improve those investments, the labor policies, labor supply policies, you know, the climate change investments, the inclusion investments in a way that kind of structures. So again, fiscal policies and monetary policy are working together, but not overstimulating the economy at full employment. So yeah, a wealth tax could actually be something that's very interesting. I think your government has already been talking about taxing e-commerce companies in a different way. I think there's a lot of policy support for that. And wealth taxes, I mean, there's a whole literature around wealth taxes that is really probably not overwhelmingly positive. It's just like they're about a, maybe a one-time tax, the kind that you're proposing. Nathaniel would, would actually could be quite interesting in a post-COVID restart. That, that's what struck me that a number of people writing in this space point to the challenges with implementation, the administrative challenges ongoing with annual valuation, and they point to the ability for individuals to just change their behavior, to pay accountants, to pay lawyers, and, and to effectively avoid the tax. 
and they also point to the distortive effects of as a result of, of, a, of an annual approach. But then those same concerns largely fall away when we talk about a one-time tax. Now, one of the driving motivations behind this wealth tax conversation, be it annual or one-time, is also generational fairness concerns. And when we look at not stimulus, but putting ourselves on a, on a firmer, fairer foundation going forward, generational fairness seems to me looms large, especially against the backdrop of, of spending and supports throughout this crisis, which when we look at quantitative easing and we look at low interest rates and, and we look at necessary supports in, in many respects for people to, to get by, there has to have been an inflationary effect on home prices. And young people are looking at the idea of home ownership is fleeting for, for many young people. And that can't be, or, or is it? I, I don't know. Is that a sustainable way forward? And shouldn't we be emphasizing the need for generational fairness going forward? The answer certainly is yes, that we need to be very mindful of the fairness for the next generation. I think when you, you, you think about the incredible amount of fiscal and monetary supports that are in the economy right now, really unprecedented in a post-World War context that you almost have to expect that there's gonna, it's going to create certain imbalances that we're going to have to clean up. I think housing is one of those examples. And I think housing is, is, I think it's an example where because of COVID and that I think people are just, a lot of people didn't want to move. So that, you know, a lot of those resale houses were not going in the market. So we had a bit of a supply demand issue where supply got really weak. I think that created price and inflationary pressures for those people looking to get into the market. So yeah, these are imbalances that we're we're seeing right now that are caused by a COVID economy, which is impacting supply and demand. And there is money in this economy. Not everybody is shut down. Uh, there are a lot of people like myself that are still you know, getting a salary, even though we're living over Zoom. So, yeah, these things are going to have to be dealt with. And I think we, we need we need to be careful about uh, that balance in the package going forward. Like when Professor Summers talks about potential inflationary pressures, he's thinking more about structuring a package that has too much consumption in it and not enough investment. If we really mean about build back better, then we're really thinking about true investment and I apologize, not a swipe against politicians, but they use the word investment for everything. Investment, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. In a context where we say we're going to make a sacrifice now to actually create something in the future that will be there for future generations. So certainly investing in green infrastructure that allows us to uh, actually buy and purchase and use electric cars, is just as one example, is an investment. And we should be separating out when we're when we're financing and back to the transparency question and build back better. Real investments should be separated out from more consumption-related spending, and and we should treat it differently. It has a different impact, you know, in terms of the cyclical movement in the economy. But real investments are really should be there to boost potential growth rates in the long term. So I think there's a lot that we can do in a fiscal planning framework when we're setting these anchors and rules and guardrails to separate out investment from consumption. I think that's what has Professor Summers. Professor Goodhart from LSE kind of worried about inflation. If we're too consumption focused, we're spending money on our generation and we're not fair to the future generations. Not only are we going to raise debt, which could create future, well, higher interest rates, higher carrying costs of debt, but yeah, we want to make sure that there's room for the next generation to deal with their pandemic, would deal with those climate change issues, which we know that they're going to have to deal with. That'll be kind of economic or health related shocks. And unquestionably, you look at the climate crisis, and, and that has obvious generational consequences in the shorter term on 
housing. I mean, you won't find a house in Beaches East York that is under a million dollars, really. And that is obviously out of reach for most people, frankly, especially most young people. And so I, I do wonder, it seems we we play around the, the margins sometimes at the federal level to say, we'll have a first-time homebuyer incentive and we'll put some dollars on the table to increase supply because supply is a major constraint, but it's not really that transformative policy. And, and maybe because we can't answer everything at the federal level as it relates to housing. But I, I do worry as it relates to generational fairness that young people are seeing greater consequences and greater costs, but but not seeing the same amount of opportunity. You know, I, I mentioned the, the wealth tax piece. When we look at the wage subsidy, when you look at BC and other companies that have taken advantage, that have increased dividends, that have in at least 17 instances, there have been companies that have obtained the wage subsidy and bought back shares at the same time. Do you have any concerns about design? I know I know, federal government moved quickly and dollars at the door and it's not going to be perfect initially, but having the opportunity to revisit, we, we just revisited the sickness benefit to ensure that air travelers coming back for vacation purposes don't access that benefit. Presumably, we could do the same thing with the wage subsidy. Do you, do you think there are changes that would be necessary on that end? Possibly, yes. And I think, again, back to that issue of transparency, the more that yeah. we can see where is this money going, is it going to sectors that have really suffered? And yeah. you know, people like yourself, the media, citizens could follow this. They could be part of this debate. But I like the way you said it, Nathaniel. Like when at the beginning, we were dealing with like a liquidity solvency issue. We locked down an economy so we wouldn't overwhelm our public health system. We had to get the money out door quickly. The government succeeded in that. And so, yeah, we could start once we look at these companies. Is it really deserving? I mean, presumably, like some of these companies would still have to demonstrate that they had the revenue losses in order to, to get access to a wage subsidy program. So if it fi- if we find out in retrospect, as these, you know, this, the money's being audited, that, you know, it went to some households, some businesses that were not deserving, maybe just some bad bookkeeping or maybe other issues, like this could be cleaned up in a, in a post-COVID through the tax system. I think there was always the expectation there was going to be that. But again, the transparency really now, like, think from the beginning, get the money out the door quickly. Now, I think the conversation is we kind of move through, you know, the second wave of COVID, like, let's make sure we're targeting. And as we think about stimulus even further, and stimulus in the kind of the Keynesian sense, where you really want to close this output gap, it's really about targeting. So, if, you know, some of these companies, because of, of share buybacks, dividends, and stuff, like obviously are not deserving, but we still feel we need a wage subsidy program for some sectors. We can target these programs more and more because there's going to be a lot of scarring. The word that IMF, you know, the chief economist from the IMF uses or others have used it. Some businesses are going to be really in, in tough shape. Some households, some people, individuals have been unemployed for many months. So, you know, getting the right kinds of training programs, getting the right targeted programs for specific industry sectors that have been shut down, that, you know, that I think it would be a very important part of our recovery package. And when we look at that industry space and innovation, it's an area I'm thinking more about because of my role on the industry committee, but but also an area I've thought more about as I mentioned, having just made a budget submission, it does seem there are major growth opportunities that we could have a very targeted approach to investing in that would 
hopefully generate economic returns, but also generate social returns in a really positive way and environmental returns in a really positive way. Yet you have criticized previously the disparate nature of innovation funding in Canada. And you've said, we don't know if these are effective. There are too many of them. There's not, I guess, a stringent review brought to bear to determine what's working and what's not. For a person like me who's interested in targeted growth-focused investments that have more than economic return, but but have these other returns that I, I think are really important. Do you think that we need a wholesale change in the way we fund innovation at the same time, or we are still well-placed as it stands to deliver on some of these growth-focused investments? To the extent that I've been critical in the past about innovation spending, I think probably like the, the more recent past would be one of the early liberal budgets where I think it was maybe the 2017 budget where the government introduced an innovation type of an agenda but didn't review the tens and tens of billions of dollars that we're already spending on these programs. And there was no like strong performance framework around the innovation programs. So I think that's the context of whatever critique I would have had. If we could take the time to review those programs, it should be part of a budget. And when when we release a budget, like there could be savings from programs that are not working. But I think to a general point, there's professors at Oxford, like Professor Musicato, that's doing work with the the OECD that really makes a strong case and the right case that government basic science, government R&D is vital for the overall economy. It's just, it's really, the public sector supports the private sector in a really important way. And there's great history around that. So I I would be very supportive of increasing that kind of spending, basic science R&D spending. And I think you're right. This is a reset type of period that we need. And so the government should think about, like, how can we launch these important innovations? I think we're all experiencing transformations in the economy, literally, as you and I are talking over Zoom today and working in a completely different way, that we know that the economies are transforming. So yes, building resilience, building sustainability into an economy through R&D and the government leading the way makes total sense to me. But yeah, we can have a strong performance framework around it. I also quite liked uh, Mazzucato's notion of a national innovation fund that would then accrue some equity stake or return back into the fund to replenish the fund and to invest further, that the public sector is an important partner with the private sector in R&D and therefore monetization of that R&D, but that the public sector doesn't always take the returns that it should be taking to then continue that kind of investment on a going forward basis. Uh, Many details to be worked out, but I quite like that idea in principle. You've played an interesting role in advising and educating parliamentarians for many years now during your role as in the PBO, but also now with the Institute for Fiscal Studies and Democracy. Is there anything else that you would want members of parliament to know in relation to pandemic spending in relation to what comes next? I would maybe just highlight one. There's an initiative that the infrastructure minister, Minister McKenna, is well is being asked to lead, something that, that showed up in the, the latest versions of mandate letters, the concept of a national infrastructure needs assessment. And I think it was pretty much enveloped around getting to net zero in 2050, so very much an environmental focus. So we've seen, you know, I think great success in places like the UK and Australia with these sorts of national needs assessments. So really take a hard look. What is the status of our, our current public infrastructure on a net asset basis is probably the eight, $900 billion range. A lot of that stock is owned by municipalities, some provinces, some of the federal government. But really take a hard look. What is it going to take to rewire that infrastructure 
to get to a net zero you know, world in 2050. So really build the evidence behind it. Of course, it means it'll be data related. There'll be you know, ways to kind of present, bring that data to life. I would really hope, I really want Minister McKenna to succeed on that, that initiative. It's not going to be an easy thing to do in the context of federal provincial politics. And so bringing the provinces on side, bringing municipalities on side, you know, bringing the, the private sector on side to the infrastructure bank. But I think it's, it's something we have to do. It just seems to me that we have a very low level of literacy when it comes to what is our infrastructure stock and what does it look like? And, you know, I've seen great advances in recent years in the UK and Australia. It'd be nice if Canada can catch up. When people talk about smart cities of the future, to think of the beaches but in a completely digital world, but we know we're bringing the proper infrastructure at the right amount of time. We know what those carbon emissions are coming from the bay. Like, I think it, it could change the way we operate. Well, I, I appreciate your time today. I always appreciate being able to steal your time as I, as I have done many times in the past. And I especially appreciate you will remember when you came out to Beaches East York here. And I know Helena is so thankful for your time and your support in her advocacy, which we saw a $30 million commitment to kids cancer research in the platform. And now the hope is that we'll see that realized in, in the budget. So that's that's work underway as well. But I, I really appreciate your advocacy, your time and, and helping me become a better member of Parliament. Nathaniel, thank you so much for the work that you do for Canadians, but and obviously the good people from the beaches area is so important. And I'm really glad that we have people like you in Canada that step up and become, with your backgrounds, that want to be political leaders. It's, it's a, just a great honor to speak with you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. I always find Kevin's analysis helpful, and we can no doubt expect a clearer picture of our federal finances in the coming budget. Two points worth adding out of this conversation. First, the latest numbers I've seen are that Canada's billionaires are now more than $50 billion richer, for those who care. And two, on the question of research and development and spending on basic science, this past week, actually, our federal government announced over $500 million to support more than 100 research projects and almost 1,000 researchers across the country. Remember to subscribe for future episodes of Uncommons, including one with Jen Squeeze's Paul Kershaw that will get into greater detail around generational fairness concerns. Please do, of course, leave a five-star review if you like what we're doing. And otherwise, until next time. <laughs>